Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Quacks Podcast. Now, today I have an interview with Kirsten Carey for you. This is going to be a bit different than some of the normal topics on this show. She is going to talk about the mental, emotional, and spiritual side of disease, uh, autoimmune diseases in particular. Now, she and her husband have put together courses and programs to help people get at the root cause of why their bodies may be attacking themselves. Diseases like Hashimoto's, rheumatoid arthritis, celiac disease, lupus, type 1 diabetes, multiple sclerosis, psoriasis, and Crohn's. Now, as the interview goes on, you will see that the tools she uses aren't just for autoimmune disorders, but they can actually be used by everyone to improve their life. Now, make sure you stay tuned until the end for my summation. I think you're going to get some value out of it and enjoy the interview. Today, I have on Kirsten Carey. She is a holistic practitioner. Kirsten, thanks so much for coming on. We're going to talk about a lot of cool autoimmune stuff and uh, can't wait to get started here. Me too. I'm excited to be here. So let's start off by talking about what it is you do and how you got into it. Oh, great question. Um, well, I mean, I didn't wake up one day when I was, you know, six years old and, and get dressed up for Halloween and say I wanted to be a practitioner. Um, I really had no real interest in the health field. Um, I got started right out of college, really just running my own business, um, working with people on their business development and helping them with their marketing and their sales. And then I was traveling a whole ton and I was getting really tired and I couldn't function that well anymore. And I was using a lot more caffeine and I realized I was gaining a lot of weight and a lot of things were health wise for me, not going well, though I had been an athlete all through high school and part of college. And so I was somebody who was just relatively on the surface, a healthy person. But the more I got into the traveling and in my business, I, I wasn't doing well. Uh, adult acne hit, uh, migraines were debilitating, mood swings, um, and again, this weight fluctuation, which I had never had to deal with ever. So I started kind of on this journey to figure out what was wrong. And after various years and <laughs> numerous specialists and doctors and invasive testing and labs and medications and supplements and you know being pulled apart, um, I finally got a diagnosis of celiac disease, which at the time I was thrilled because I thought, great, I have a name for this. I know what's wrong with me now and, and I know what to do. Um, but interestingly enough, they basically were just like, well, don't eat gluten and be on your merry way. And I didn't get any better. In fact, I started getting worse and I just didn't understand what was going on. So I kind of chucked myself into researching and understanding what that meant and what celiac disease really was. And, you know, conventional medicine really has no more help except for kind of medications and they couldn't really help me on the diet end. And so I ended up seeing some natural health practitioners and they could only get me so far. So I closed my consulting company. Um, I do not recommend this, but I opened a, a nutritional, healthy, organic restaurant. I ended up opening three of them. Uh, which just made me more tired, which was crazy. And then I went back to school for nutrition. And after a couple years in the nutrition field and really learning, I realized how little people knew about nutrition and the autoimmune diseases as a whole. And I, during that, I then realized I had Hashimoto's as well, which is the autoimmune disease that attacks your thyroid. So I got a kind of a double whammy, which is really popular or really common, not popular, but common for people who, once you have one autoimmune disease, your body's kind of set up to get another one and another one, which is why a lot of people have multiple autoimmune issues. Definitely. So, um, yeah, so it, it's, I was kind of forced into this because I couldn't find the answers that I was looking for because I wasn't prepared to just accept the answer of this is just how it's going to be for you. And once I started learning more about diet for me, uh, not just following, you know, the special diet for autoimmune people or go vegan or go hardcore paleo or whatever the latest greatest was at the time, I started realizing how food worked for me. And I started consulting with clients and really kind of pulled my restaurant into the mix where we would do um, food sensitivity testing for people and we would develop meal plans for those people. And my chefs would literally make the exact meals they needed. And the locals would pick up their meals a couple times a week and eat exactly what they needed. And my chefs would be involved. And it was, it was pretty, it was pretty cool process. Um, 
But as I continued on learning more about me and learning more about the swings that you can have, you get better for a while and then you start having these flares and then you get better for a while. I wanted to understand why it felt like it was up and down. So then I started getting more into the emotional components of illness. And I didn't get any of that support, even with nutrition training I was getting, or I got like, go meditate, go breathe better, like, you know, calm your stress. And I'm like, I have three restaurants, (laughs) (laughs) calm my stress with 28 employees. And (laughs) like the hardest job ever is running a restaurant. And so I got deeper into and did additional hundreds and hundreds of hours of training on what I refer to now as the soul component. And that to me, soul just means what makes you uniquely who you are and understanding why you perceive things the way you do, why you react the way you do, what your process is, how you think about things, what your wiring looks like emotionally, which impacts your physical representation. So I did a ton more training and a variety of different processes between tapping and cognitive behavioral therapy and EMDR. And I mean, we could be here all day talking about the different levels I got into. Uh, I got into energy healing. I mean, I just kind of took everything I could get my fingers around. And then I healed at a level that I didn't know was possible. I felt better once I started doing that after autoimmune disease than I did before, Hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, because I felt so much more connected to me. And I understood the conversation my own body was having with me. And I started using these processes with our clients and they started getting better at a rate that was so impressive that it wasn't just the labs. It wasn't just the nutrition. It was how they were wired to heal, how they thought about themselves, how they felt about themselves, how they um, believed in their own ability to heal and process and manage traumas in their past. Um, so I know that was kind of a shorter question, but that was a longer answer hmm. on that. But I, I kind of, I believe the universe drags us to where, <laughs> drags us to where we are supposed to be, whether we see it or not. So I am so grateful every day, believe it or not, of getting celiac disease and Hashimoto's because it pulled me into where I think I truly was supposed to be and helping other people understand where they're truly supposed to be in their lives. Yeah, I, I definitely hear you about uh, the universe dragging you. Um, there was, a, I think there's a Nietzsche quote that goes something like, uh, what are men's truths except their undeniable mistakes <laughs> or something like mm-hmm. that, which is just pointing yep. to the fact that, you know, a lot of times to get to the truth, we do have to be kind of dragged there to get there. <laughs> yeah. So when, yeah. when you say uh, soul, does that have like a religious or a spiritual connotation mm. or is it just kind of like a maybe like a secular, you know, this is the root of who you are. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I, I, I lean more to the root of who you are. We have a lot of clients who are in different faiths, different religious backgrounds, and all of them kind of come together beautifully in this one concept of if you don't understand the connection with self, with your own purpose, with your own soul, your body will not be in line with itself. So however you see God or your spiritual connection or your, if you cannot connect to self, you cannot further connect to whatever your version of that is. So I don't see it as a religious connection. Some people may take it that way, but I see that soul is just what uniquely makes you, you. And when you talk to people, they know, like, I know I'm aligned with me or I'm misaligned. Hmm. And that to me is the, the fractured soul peace when you're not feeling aligned with who you are and we all know if we sit long enough if we can get quiet long enough we can connect to that but there's so many other things that that pull us away from that you know how we were raised what our belief systems are compared to what our original people were our original tribe like our parents our siblings that's why we a lot of us are challenged so much by our our siblings and our parents and our friends and the people we grew up with because sometimes we're, we're in conflict with who we thought we were supposed to be versus who we actually are. Mm. Yeah, so the way I first heard about you actually was the soul, um, you said the fractured soul. I don't know if it was the fractured soul program or the rewire your soul program. I don't know. But one of my uh, friends, her name was Margaret, she took this course and she said, man, it was like, one of the biggest transformational experiences that she had ever experienced. So I'm curious if this is something that you see often with your clients. And if so, what do you think accounts for that, uh, that, that radical shift? 
Yeah, we, we see it a lot. And, you know, it's interesting when we get, um, and you, you know, on our website, we have numerous people talking about their experiences and what it looks like. And a lot of them still see traditional medical doctors to still see some of their labs and things like that, even though we do labs with our clients, but some of them still kind of get stuck with, I have to see conventional medical doctors. And we have numerous times had clients go back to their standard MD, DO, and their labs are so shifted after they work with us that the doctor's like, this must be the wrong labs. I don't understand what this is. You know, we've heard doctors say this must be a miracle. And interestingly, I get really frustrated by that term. This is a miracle Hmm. because it's not, it's how our bodies were actually designed to heal. We just don't support that in conventional thinking. Yeah, it's a miracle. So I, Exactly, because they're they're not trained that way. So for yes, you're correct. By thinking that process, of course it is. It's, traditional medicine, conventional medicine typically looks at something and says, we're all on a journey to illness at some level. And at some point you're going to get sick and at some point you're going to need to be diagnosed with a name and at some point you're going to have to take medication. And that's the end of their story. The thought that we could not only stop the progression of it, but reverse it is something that we don't really think of or we call it a miracle. And I'm like, no, it's actually not. That's actually how we were designed to, to be, to heal. So I don't like the idea of, you know, people get these radical transformations. I'm like, it's it's not like I slap them in the head and they're, they're all healed. It's, it's not that it's once you can connect with self, your body, then you then can have a conversation with your body that makes sense to you. So you understand what you need more of. You don't just, you know, subordinate to a doctor or conventional medicine to say, well, what do I need? I don't understand. What we found is once clients can connect with themselves, they get it. They hear the conversation, they understand the language and they know what to do. They know how to shift. They know how to trust themselves and their own instincts with some guidance from us, of course. But if you look at, okay, so if you look at autoimmune specifically, and you know, that's our area of expertise because it's so obviously near and dear to my heart, because that was what kind of dragged me into this was my own autoimmune issues. But this is pretty much any illness or any issue. But if you look at autoimmune disease, it's the body attacking itself. It's a literal internal suicide going on. So you have to back up and say, well, why would the body not recognize itself and be on the attack to self? Well, if you look at that energetically or emotionally, If the body is misaligned with what the soul wants or what your purpose in life is or who you really are, and you're misaligned, your body's not going to recognize you because you're acting in a way that is not true to you. So So, what what you're saying, I think, if, if I hear you right, is that maybe the root cause of autoimmune disease is kind of an inner conflict. And it's it's like you're unattached from who you are. And by bringing those two, by having a union there, you can resolve the autoimmune disease? Yep, basically. Because the body then recognizes itself and starts looking at your cells and tissues and identifying you as things it needs to protect, not something it needs to take out. And how? Because if the system is attacking you, it's trying to take something away that it thinks is dangerous. And when it doesn't recognize something, it tries to eliminate it. Okay. And how does nutrition and you know how do all the other aspects fit into that because some people i know you know it's like wow i went on carnivore and and i don't have autoimmune disease anymore yep yep what we see with that it's typically a short-term fix when people do it that way because they're able to do make some sort of shift at some level the body then can make a shift and then you feel better however what we typically see and this is not everybody but what we typically see when somebody says that they're feeling good for 12 weeks they're like, oh, look at me. I made this major shift with my diet. I went paleo, I went carnivore. I went uh, autoimmune paleo. I did all the things. I feel great. What ends up happening is you check in with them a year later. Typically, they're kind of back where they were or things are sliding because a lot of the underlying root issues, the emotional issues, the soul-related issues that weren't corrected come back because they're a stronger pattern. So it's an old pattern that kind of drags them back in because our bodies don't care if we're happy. Our bodies don't care if we feel good. They care if we think we're safe. So if your body's under the impression that something is keeping you unsafe, it'll push you back into an old pattern that kept you safe, at least from your perspective at that moment. That's really interesting. So an old pattern where you were safe, are you talking about like a childhood pattern or? Mm-hmm. so Typically. Yeah. So I do a lot of work around what I call wounded children and most of our wounded children, most of our, what we would call a trauma. And most people look at trauma and think, oh, you know, I was uh, molested or attacked or abused as a child. That's a trauma. And most people would agree. Yeah, that's a trauma. 
What most people don't consider are what we call the little T traumas that typically happen before we turn seven years old. And then we build on those little T traumas. For example, um, when I was four, and I remember this like it happened yesterday, I was four years old. I was first born. My dad was super excited that he was going to have a boy. I was not a boy, but he treated me like one hmm. and was so excited to teach me sports and baseball and all the things. And I played along because I wanted, you know, daddy to love me. Again, you have to think from a four-year-old standpoint. So my dad used to bring me to the yard and play softball and baseball with me. Well, there was one particular day. He throws the softball to me. I'm four. I miss the ball. It smacks me in the face, splits my lip open. He scoops me up runs me into the kitchen. I'm bleeding, you know, off my lips. <laughs> and my mother turns and she's making dinner. She sees, you know, her firstborn bleeding from the face. She's all upset. My father, on the other hand, is beaming. He's so proud. My mother is like, what is wrong with you? Why are you so excited? And he said, look at her. She's not crying. So at four, I hear my father so proud of me that I'm sucking it up, walking it off. I'm not crying. I was probably so shocked. <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. Yeah. But my dad saw that as, look at my daughter. She's so strong. I'm so proud of her. She's not crying. So I hear this and I associate my four-year-old brain to when I don't cry, when I suck it up, when I don't show emotion, daddy loves me. Daddy's proud of me. So as my life continued, I continued looking for proof that that's how my father shows love when I don't cry. So I learned really early on to just squash all of my emotions, shove them down, pretend like everything was fine and, and be stoic. And my dad would talk about how great I was because of that. Now we can pull his history apart for all the reasons why he does that way. It shows up that way. But to me, in my little kid brain, it's hardwired into us to do things to keep us in the mix of who are, we consider our tribe, who is usually our parents, whoever our big caregivers are. And whatever the tribe thinks is appropriate, if we don't fall in line, we could be thrown out of the tribe or thrown out of the tribe. And of course, our chances of survival are lower. So I learned right away, one of the ways to stay in the tribe and be loved by the tribe and, and be you know, counted as a tribe member who plays along is to squash emotion. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal if you just kind of look at that story. It seems kind of sweet in some ways and lovely and wonderful. However, if my message was for people to be proud of you, to stay in the tribe, to stay safe, you can't show emotion, the emotion has to still go somewhere. It's still there. So it's not like I was emotionless, but I learned how to squash it. I used to tell people how great I was at compartmentalizing, but that had an impact on my relationships. That had an impact on my way of communicating with myself that had an impact on me at a deeper level. So if you look at emotion as um, like a tangible thing, you have an emotion, it has to go somewhere. It has to be processed. It has to be shown. And if it's not, it gets absorbed, but not processed. So that's how celiac disease starts. That's how stomach issues start. I mean, if you look at little kids, if they have stomach pain a lot, you start asking questions. Like, what's emotionally going on? Is this child sick? Is this child uh, nervous? Is she upset? And I started processing that. And so it's no shock that I ended up with celiac disease. Um, yeah, and I can, I can see why you'd also be fairly good at business and starting companies mm. and, and all that, you know, that, that's uh, right. quite the skill there to be able to just shut all that out and plow forward. Yeah. But so you can see the benefit there, but you can also see the drawback. So if you can learn to process that, understand when that's available to you to process it properly, but also when to use it to your favor, that's when you can start integrating that, processing it and becoming truly who you are. Because I love business. I love working with people. I love that. And yes, emotions don't fall <laughs> in that well with certain businesses, but being emotionless or not processing the emotion later it, it, it will fester into something. So how do you get at that wounded child? What does the process look like to begin to heal that? That's a great question. So I have several different processes for people. And the first thing is just explaining that process, just explaining what I just did um, to you is these, the understanding that everyone's running around with somewhere between four and six wounded children at some level. Starting to recognize and identify them becomes important. A really quick way to know if you've got one running around, which I would guarantee everyone does, is look at where your pet peeves are. Look at where you feel triggered. Like you just kind of really get angry quickly. Like if you can step out of it and look at it, you think, I'm arguing 
really hard for something that really isn't worth this argument. Like, why am I so incensed over this? Why am I so upset over this? Or look at situations where you have um, the same argument over and over. Hmm. Like, is there a process you look at your spouse or you look at friends and you find yourself getting really upset over something over and over? That's usually a wound in there somewhere or else we wouldn't be fighting like to the death over it. Okay, yeah. And that is a good idea to find them. Yeah, one thing you you just said, you know, you argue with other people or you get angry about something. One thing you said in the video you sent me uh, was that we are often attracted to the people who balance our wounded child mm-hmm. um, or, or maybe, you know, and maybe argument is part of that. So what, what is that? What do you mean by that? Yeah. So like if we have a wound, like, um, okay, so an emotional wound for me was this, I couldn't show emotion. So um, the, my spouse now, he's very good at emotional things. He's very good at showing emotion that he's not crying all day long, but he actually was the one who pointed out to me when we were dating and we were getting pretty serious. He, he said something about like something about how I felt about him. And I said, well, you know, I love you. Right. And he said, yeah, but you realize you've never actually said, I love you. And I'm like, sure I have. He goes, Kirsten, you've said, you know, I love you, which is a way to separate from the emotion because I'm kind of dancing around it. I'm not saying I love you, which would be so exposing to me. I would say, you know, I love you. Yeah, that's... And it was this way of me kind of dancing around the situation, but he caught it. And he was like, uh, can you be a little bit more emotionally connected here? Like, <laughs> can we have this conversation? So he helped to balance that out. And I started really working that process. And now I do what I do. I've been able to work through all sorts of processes where I can be open with my emotional side without feeling restricted or without feeling like I'm in trouble if I show an emotion. Okay. So if somebody's somebody's arguing with somebody else about something, maybe you could give an example mm -hmm. around that. Like I'm fighting this person and it's actually me fighting with my inner child or something. What would that look like? Yep. So here, here's a good one. And a lot of people love this example. So uh, people who are perfectionists or who get really incensed when they go and they open the dishwasher and it's been loaded incorrectly. How dare you put the dishes in here like this? Don't you know there's a way to load the dishwasher? And you realize you're getting like super angry over how your sp- spouse or kids or friends have loaded the dishwasher. How dare they? Now, on the surface, you look at that and you're like, does it really matter? I mean, I can argue, yes, certain dishes need to go a certain way for them to get cleaner. (laughs) But for you to get that upset over the dishes, it's not the dishes that are the problem at that moment. It's your belief that there's a perfect way to do something and that somebody else could completely ruin that by having a dish out of place. And a lot of people will celebrate their perfectionism. I can tell you with certainty, if you feel like you're a perfectionist, there is a wounded child in there somewhere. There is a belief that there is perfect, which there isn't, which means you're setting yourself up for failure all the time. And the idea that if everything isn't exactly as is, that the world is falling apart, there's a wounded child in there somewhere. That's really intriguing. So is this, would you say most of your clients are women or is it a good mixture of women and men? Because I know autoimmune disease tends to affect women more. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, for many reasons, we have more women than male clients. One of them is literally just our marketing uh, stats. We, we tend to go after when we look at advertising or we look at marketing, I tend to use women more. Like I actually want to attract more women just because I enjoy working with them. But there's more and more men who are being found out for autoimmune, but men are less likely to go ask for help when it comes to medical issues. So it's kind of interesting. It's kind of this dual thing where we are purposely marketing for women. But when you look at it overall, men tend to be less likely to go to the doctor. So all of the male clients that we have, their wives were the ones who actually brought them into the program. So basically, we have this identifying a problem um, that comes from your past. And mm-hmm. it's it's a pattern, it's stuck. And we realize this pattern causes sickness. And we're trying to break that pattern in some way in, in some mm-hmm. practical way. One thing that I notice is that people tend to, you know, oftentimes they have these patterns that they do over and over again, that cause them pain. Mm-hmm. And they say, and you know, yep. they say, Oh, I, I wish I I wish I didn't do this, but I just keep doing it. And, and I don't know why and I, and I try and stop but I can't. And something that they often don't see is that there is a benefit to that pattern, just kind of yes. like the business we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier. 
Could you talk more to that, like the the, the benefits yeah. of these sickness patterns and and realizing that? Yeah. So perfect uh, way to describe that. So um, again, our body isn't wired to keep us happy. It's wired to keep us in what it's familiar, what it thinks is safe. So if you've been doing the same thing over and over and over and you haven't died, I know that sounds a little dramatic, but this is kind of how we're hardwired in our primal brain, right? Our animal brain just says, keep them alive, keep them alive. So if you've done some pattern over and over and over and you're still alive, the, the brain kind of looks at that and says, oh, look, this must be working. So if you keep doing something over and over, there is some benefit to you. So like the idea that I continue to not show emotion that was beneficial to me because it kept me part of the tribe. It kept me safe. And it was a defense mechanism that I used because I thought showing emotion was dangerous. So the perfectionism thing that a lot of times you'll see that come out of people who have parents who are hypercritical or parents who are very narcissistic or parents who didn't have a lot of their own self-love. So they kind of tried to live through their children and they wanted their children to be perfect. So they, you know, made them think that if they weren't perfect, they wouldn't be loved. Parents don't look at you and say, you're not going to be loved if you're not perfect, but that's the message that often comes through. So if the child thinks being perfect and not getting things wrong is how they're going to be loved they're going to look at that as a benefit. So if somebody overeats, for example, and they keep overeating and they keep saying, well, I can't believe I keep overeating because it's not making me feel better or I'm not getting better or this is hurting my health, there is still a benefit to overeating. There's a rush of endorphins when they take in the sugar or the salt or the whatever they're eating. There is chemical release. There's a familiarity of feeling that. There's a, a momentary loss of um, of um, belief system that they're not worth something. So if they associate feeling better with eating food, like if their parents used food as a way to help them move through something or make a decision, or if you eat all your dinner, you'll get your dessert. What ends up happening is we eat all our dinner, even though our bodies have told us, Hey, I'm kind of not hungry anymore, but the goal was the dessert. So you'll eat through the non-hunger and then you'll eat the dessert afterwards. So now we've misinterpreted when hunger is done. So we've misinterpreted the conversation with our body. So we'll keep doing that because the message was, I'm a good girl when I eat all of my food and my dessert comes. So that's a benefit to overeating. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. So what I want to touch real quick on a little bit more on autoimmune disease. One thing you've mm -hmm. mentioned is epigenetics. How, how does mm -hmm. epigenetics tie into this? So love epigenetics. So basically what's very fascinating is that if your parents had traumas, which every one of ours did at some level, that can be passed on through DNA. So if your mother was raped, for example, or sexually molested, that fear, that trauma actually can tag into the DNA and actually be pushed through the egg into the next generation. And the reason for that is, it, again, it keeps us safe, so to speak. So there was, a, there was several studies done, but the most common one that most people recognize is the study that was done on the, um, the white mice, where they took this one uh, round of white mice they had them go and smell cherry blossoms. Every time they smelled the cherry blossom, they would electrocute these little mice, which is terrible. I'm not condoning this at all, <laughs> but they would electrocute these little mice, right? They then took those mice and they bred them. And the next generation down, they took those mice and they let them smell the cherry blossom, but they did not electrocute them. But the mice still responded as if they were going to be in danger. They then took the next generation, so now the grandchildren, same thing, they smelled cherry blossom, they got upset thinking they were going to be electrocuted and in danger. They could process this and replicate this, this process over and over and over up to 14 generations deep. Wow. The reason that's significant is because within our DNA, if we think something causes us danger, we want to pass that on to the generation next to us to try and keep them safe. So a lot of times that people will feel like they're anxious all the time. Some of that anxiety is not there specifically, but it came through the DNA structure from their parents. Wow. It's, it's kind so of like, there's generational healing that has to happen. That's like turtles all the way down a little bit. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, mm -hmm. is that, I mean, is that just sometimes overwhelming to think that, you know, what I'm going through is just, 
I don't you know, I don't even know what it is. It could be something from great, great, great grandma, uh, you know, yep. in the wild west or something like that. I mean, how, yep. I don't know. How do you get at those things if you don't even know what they could be? Well, again, it's the process and understanding. What's super cool is that if you at least work on your own stuff, so you don't even worry about the other people's stuff right now, you work on your own stuff. Like what's my wounded child? What am I able to control right here and now? What can I work on? How can I understand how my body works, how it's wired, why it's doing this? That conversation becomes more clear within yourself. Believe it or not, you start healing your own traumas. You can then backwards impact and forwards impact the generations around you. So you clearing your own stuff actually takes away the process for the people um, in the generations before you and after you. Wow, that's amazing. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about what like what's an example of what a, what a course would be like. You know, what kind of work would people have to put into it? You know, is there an exercise, nutrition, or journaling portion? You know, you know whatever. What what goes into it? Good question. So we have a couple of different ways into how we do things. We have um, a program, it's a little bit of a DIY where they're doing a lot of the work on their own, but they're getting some support with us during Q and A's and group activities during the week. That is a process where we have them go through different scenarios, different education, different trainings to understand a lot of what we've been talking about. So how do you understand your own wiring? What are the exercises you could be doing to start identifying your wounded children and then starting to help them process their own perceived traumas? Um, I use a variety of different techniques between uh, frequency healing and um, uh, techniques that I've created over time through NLP um, and then just processing information, like asking questions like, what are your biggest pet peeves? Where did they start? How did that work out? When was the first time you remember that? And helping them really process what the pieces are. Like we have a client who was having severe pain and she just couldn't process it, couldn't understand it. it was all the time. We finally started doing some of these exercises and I asked her what I thought was a pretty simple question is when she remembers some of this pain starting. So she told me this, um, I had her do this exercise where um, why is the pain actually helping her? And she was like, how is it helping me? I'm like, I know it sounds crazy, but just work on this. Give me 30 ways it's helping you. And in one of her answers, it was so obvious to me that she had had some sexual trauma. So I asked her about that answer and she said, oh, well, when I was like 19, I was raped by a guy who I was dating. So she felt safe around him. I'm like, okay. But the way she was talking, I knew the trauma wasn't within the actual act. There was more to it. And as she continued explaining it to me, she then started explaining that she was so shamed by how she handled it. Not that it happened, but how she handled it because she just identified herself as a strong person. But once she got through the incident, her words were, I let it happen. And then I didn't do anything about it. So I was like, well, what were you supposed to do about it? She says, well, a strong person would have gone to the authorities. A strong person would have done this, a strong person. So now her identity had been conflicted on what she thought a strong person would do versus who she thought she was. So as we continue talking about that, I had her then go through another process and asked her, well, why didn't you do that? And she's like, well, I don't know. And I said, okay, well, how did it help you not to do that? How did it help you not to be your version of strong? And she's like, what do you mean? So she started explaining this. We started realizing that in that instance, had she done that, she probably would have been more injured by her perceptions because if she'd gone to the police, there would have been a whole issue. She may have had the issue all over again. She didn't think anybody would believe her because it was somebody she was dating and she was purposely in the incident, like so many pieces. And then she realized she actually was strong by not doing anything from her perception because she realized she actually kept herself safer in her own perception by not doing anything. But her identity was so wrapped up in this is what strong people do that her trauma actually was out of her belief on what strong people would do in this situation, not the incident in itself. So I took her through the process. Once we realized where the trauma really was, it wasn't any sexual issue. It wasn't the physical part. It was the emotional belief system. She was able to pull it apart and her, her um, pain went down. Her ability to believe that she had to be in conflict all the time with people, fighting with people all the time stopped. So it, it totally shifted her entire perception about the incident itself. And we were able to go back to that wounded child and really process because it, the wounded child was really six years old. The girl who was traumatized was 19 years old, if that makes sense. Hmm. But the six-year-old, the reason it was traumatic is because when she was six, she had to learn how to be what she considered was strong because she had an abusive um, parent. So her thing was, you always tell on people who are hurting you. 
but later she didn't. So it was really the six-year-old was who we had to really work with, believe it or not. Yeah, it was like a conflict between who she thought she was and her actions. Exactly. And most of us, that's actually the issue. Most people say, well, was the actual incident? In some ways, it, it can be. But it's usually how we perceive the incident and then how we actually react to the incident. Yeah. It, and if you don't process that, you'll end up in therapy for the rest of your life not getting anywhere. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just amazing. Uh, I interview people all the time on this podcast and it's 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 amazing how often people are, they're basically detectives, you know, they're just looking mm -hmm. for the root cause of things. That's kind of what it all comes down to a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you can't find the root, you're going to keep just attacking the symptoms. That's why we were saying before, some people feel better when they shift to this diet or this, but if they're only helping with the symptoms, the root's going to find a different way to sprout in a different level. It's going to come out through some other venue. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, frequency healing. What is that? Yeah. Um, you know, that's about as woo woo as I get, which is pretty funny. Um, I, you know, again, grew up in a household where everything had to be science all the time. So everything that we do, there's always science backing all of it. Um, the epigenetic component, there's always a science behind it. And I was at a conference one time where this woman did, um, some, uh, I call it frequency healing. She, she was doing some, uh, other processes and I had an issue with my shoulder that alleviated after I did this, this exercise with her. That's just kind of, it was kind of like a guided meditation, for lack of a better example. Um, and afterwards, this shoulder issue that I had been having for on and off for years just stopped. And I was like, hmm. so I went to her later and I was like, you have to teach me what you were doing. So she, she, I went through a process with her. I went through a 16 week course with her and I learned what she was doing. And then I added a lot of my own stuff to it. What we find with clients when we do this process is it allows them to take underlying, hidden, blocked, traumas, wounded children, issues, and help it surface a little bit more easily. It's kind of like you're shaking stuff up and then things are kind of surfacing a little bit more easily. So um, it's kind of like a guided meditative um, component. But if you look at frequency, if you look at um, energy, everything is, and even, even conventional medicine is using those kinds of things. They're using magnets, they're using uh, frequency, they're using like uh, ultrasounds, that's a frequency. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at MRIs, they're using frequency and magnets and, and things like that. So it's a similar process, believe it or not. Um, but it's not unlike, uh, like if you walk into a room, you can sense if somebody's really angry. That's you're feeling the frequency of that person vibrating and you don't realize it. But most people can, can know like somebody's off or there's anger in the room and I'm not sure what's going on. Uh, if you ever have a dog walk into a room and he gets all upset and he leaves, that dog is working off of, of energy. It's frequency. So I help people kind of tap into their own frequency. Mm. Um, so again, have that conversation with themselves so that they can understand what's going on at a deeper level if they've started blocking things um, from themselves, which is a lot of people. Yeah. Just as an aside, I, I'm in sales and marketing too. And you talk about uh, walking into a room and kind of getting a vibe. One of the most useful things, I don't know, you tell me if you've found this too, is to connect with people is mirroring whatever vibe that is. You know, you walk into mm -hmm. a room and if people are kind of unhappy and frustrated, you, you kind of mirror that a little bit. You don't fight against it. And uh, it helps you connect with yes. people where they are. And then you can actually affect change. I don't know if you've noticed that too. but yeah. uh, Oh, absolutely. Which is exactly why we, a lot of times our clients will talk about the, the healing that they see within their families or the healing they see within their friends. And even though their friends aren't doing the work necessarily, they themselves are shifting the frequency for everyone they come in contact with. So if they can start finding their own calm and their own balance, it actually does have an influence on everyone else around them where it's, I love it when clients are like, I don't know what's going on, but my husband is so much nicer these days. It's like, <laughs> that's you shifting that, <laughs> right? You're not being triggered the same way. You're not reacting to him the same way. He doesn't get that energy off of you. If you're all frustrated all the time, nobody wants to be nice to you if you're frustrated all the time, yeah. but you start to change that frequency and it shifts the whole household. Yeah. So you, you also mentioned NLP. How are you guys using that? So neuro-linguistic programming, um, I'm sure in sales, you're, you're familiar with some of that. Um, most people are, are familiar with it. Tony Robbins was one of the most popular people who have brought that out. It's basically just understanding what NLP really was. And, and it was started by a man, I think his last name was Gerber, um, like Gerber baby food, Gerber. In 1974, it was either three or four, he came out with this book called um, Frogs into Princes. And it's, it's a terribly horrible book to read because it's basically just a transcript. So it's, it's 
awful. But the gist of the story is it's a, it's a form of self um, healing. It's a form of self um, not meditation. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, hypnosis. Hmm. It's how you can actually uh, impact your own self and get into more of a meditative state. Well, it's been taken to a whole nother level where um, like there was an, actually an episode on um, Grey's Anatomy one time where um, Amelia she was the um, very young, but very brilliant, of course, brain doctor uh, who came in, who was, uh, she had to do a surgery. Uh, whenever she did a surgery, of course, she was brilliant and she took on the hardest surgeries and all the things. But what she would always have her staff do is she would always have her staff stand in a position they felt most powerful in. And she would always stand in this like superhero position with her hands on her hips. And she would imagine, you know, the superhero cape behind her and she would just feel the energy. Well, that's a power position. And literally your physiology will follow your emotions and your emotions will follow your physiology. So there was literally, there's been studies upon studies upon studies in NLP that show you can basically fake a physiology and get an emotional response and vice versa. So this show would show her doing this all the time. And she would stand in her superhero position. And as she felt more, she stood in a more powerful position, her shift would happen within her cells her emotions and she would feel more powerful than she could do her surgery. And of course she did all the amazing things. <laughs> well, there was actually a scene with her where she of course ends up with a brain tumor, of course. And the she irony. has to have another doctor. Yeah, I know. Dun, 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 dun. And she, she has, you know, her mentor comes in to do her brain surgery and she, of course, like this would ever happen. But right before they put her under, she says, wait, everyone wait. And she jumps off the gurney and she stands in her gown. Of course, it's flapping open in the back. <laughs> and she stands in her position in her, you know, amazing superhero position. And she makes the uh, guy that was going to do the surgery do the same thing. And everybody in the room do the same thing. Because then she felt better that it was going to be this amazing surgery. And she was going to be saved. And of course, she was. And there was like a half a percent chance she would survive and blah, 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 blah. But it's a great example and why I love shows like that, because they actually will take studies that are truth and they make them into these, you know, funny, amazing, dramatic ways. But that's actually truth. And that's actually a, a form of NLP where you can shift the body's emotion by shifting the body's physiology. Interesting. So it's learning how to make that happen. And if you've ever seen somebody do hypnosis, they're actually using NLP techniques as well where they're squeezing someone's shoulders or they're making a suggestion and you're watching them the next thing, you know, they're clucking like a chicken, but we don't make people cluck like chickens. That is not, <laughs> that is not the goal. It's more of a, how do they connect with themselves and how do they use this, uh, these techniques uh, with themselves um, and use different words. Like if somebody's saying, well, you always do that, or you never come to see me or you always, that's, that's a way to, if you can shift the word always, it actually shifts the entire thought process for the person. Yeah. Or, um, yeah. So I, hopefully that answered yeah, that. Yeah, no, it, it makes sense. I, I, that's uh, something I've definitely learned. When people say always or never, they are not mm -hmm. speaking rationally. They are coming from somewhere no, else. No, they're, yep. They're in a wounded child state, that, believe it or not, because they're, they're, it's like they're jumping back, because only children speak like that. That's not fair. You always do this. And when an adult's speaking like that, they usually they've been triggered back to a moment when they had a trauma this isn't fair. You know, there's something in that. So if you can even recognize that in other people and start recognizing that yourself, that's another way to recognize a wounded child is actually speaking. You're not speaking in your balanced adult self. Yeah. Does it always come from a wounded child or is it sometimes something that happened later in your life? Well, it, it, people love that question. What my experience has been is that you can have a bigger trauma later in life, but the reason it typically turned into a trauma later in life is because of your perceptions from what it was supposed to be or an expectation or an experience from when you were younger. So like even like you could have two people have a horrific car accident. One walks away and doesn't have any trauma from it. And the other one walks away with all sorts of trauma. I can usually take those people and go back to what their childhood experiences were, why that became a trauma. There was usually a perception or a thing that goes into that and it will change their healing ability. You know, it's, again, it's all perception. What, what our body decides as a trauma is what we perceive it to be. Did we perceive this moment, this split second moment to be good or bad? And that's usually based on who we think we're supposed to be, who we thought we were supposed to be, what we thought we were supposed to believe, think, feel, identify with. Of the people who do, because I'm sure there's some people who do your courses and, you know, they get the amazing results and there's probably some who do and they, they don't get what they mm -hmm. expect. 
What do you think the difference maker is there between those two sets of people? What makes people successful and what doesn't? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's actually one very distinct dividing line between the two. And before Anthony and I take on a client, we we have meetings with them or they have to go through other things with us to make sure that they fit who we know is going to be successful because we don't want to be on the pile of things that don't work. And it doesn't serve them. It doesn't serve us. The very big difference is the people who, and I mean this figuratively and literally, the people who show up and the people who don't. So if somebody gets so ingrained in their belief that they can't heal or the belief that no one can help them, they're not going to get better because their belief system is stronger than any process they could go through. But if somebody is in a process where they at least believe there is hope and they at least show up and if they feel they're not getting better, they reach out and they say, hey, I feel like I'm stuck. That's our job to help them through the stuck. But if nobody says anything, you know, they just keep going along with it or they just disappear. Every now and then we'll have a client. It happens maybe once a year. We'll have a client just disappears. They just won't respond to us. They don't come back. They don't. And it's, it's wow. a shame, but it happens. But sometimes the wounded child takes over so much that says, you don't deserve to heal. You don't deserve this. And they shut down and they just disappear, which is a defense mechanism. But it, it happens so rarely now because we have such a, I think, a very good process in making sure the right people who are ready to heal are moving into the program when, when they're ready. And we've turned people down and said, Hey, you're just not there yet. Um, and then they've come back two years later and then they're so hitting the ground running. Um, and so we're not there. Like if you have a credit card, you're not necessarily becoming a client. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like we want to make sure the right people are moving through this process because it can be more devastating sometimes for people if they're quote trying so hard, but they're not getting anywhere. So we're, we're pretty good at, at knowing who, who really does well. And we really, we have a lot of availability on support. So if what this sounds like quite a bit is um, the way you're describing it is it's almost like therapy in some sense. You know, some people go to therapy and they're totally ready and they're like, I have these problems and let's, let's hash those out. Other people go to therapy and it's like, well, you know, my life's kind of just bad. And, and they're, I, I guess, looking for somebody to, to kind of, drag them through whatever they're going through. Yeah. So my question is how what's the difference between a course with you and therapy? You know, what if somebody was deciding, you know, what what is that main difference there? Well, with my experience with therapy and my experience with a lot of the processes that are out there is that it's actually re-traumatizing people a lot of times because you're talking it out again. You're talking about the issue again. You're going through it again. You're reliving it. And then you end up on somebody's couch for weeks and months and, and years at a time. Uh, we had a client just the other day just posted in our, we have our own um, private group, um, kind of like Facebook, but it's her own private thing where she posted on Facebook the other day and she said, there's two trainings. I just did them back to back. I got more out of those two um, trainings than I got out of 10 years of therapy. And it's because our goal is to teach you the tools so that you can leave us. Like, I don't want our clients being around for the rest of their lives. I love our, they are amazing people and we see amazing things with them, but I don't think they should be on, they shouldn't need this kind of support forever to make this work. They should learn the tools, learn how to use them properly, ask for help, and then they're able to move on. Now we have ability for people to get uh, continuation support, things like that. But once you get past a certain level, there's, you basically should have most of the tools that you need unless some like major life event or something happens um, where you need additional support. So I, I just found people tend to get better faster this way, but we're not looking to like fill our book with the, the standard client who comes in twice a week. And, and that's the end of the story. We don't work by the hour. We don't do that. We have a process. We have a program. You move through that. And then if you need something additional after that, we have ability uh, or ways to do that. Um, but we actually want our clients <laughs> to, to hit a point where they, they can do this on their own, like go do your thing. Yeah. So what is the timeline that people could expect to, to be on, to, you know, start seeing results or, or whatnot? Great question. So I usually draw this really fun diagram on this, but if you can imagine, you know, if people are where, you know, right in this moment, they're here on the left side of the page, we see some very significant moments happening at a 12 week mark, a 12 year mark and a three year mark. And before we work with people, we, we ask them, what, what, are you, what are your expectations at 12 weeks? What are your expectations after a year? What would your expectation be after three years? Where do you want to see yourself? The trajectory we typically see with most people in the first 12 weeks, they're really learning the process, learning what got them into this, what we call crisis mode. 
Most people are in this crisis mode where they can't get out from under the patterns. And what people really need to do and what takes most people about 12 weeks, some are a little sooner, some are a little later, but 12 weeks is a pretty good average, is that they're uncovering the root issues that got them there in the first place. And then they're learning the tools and how to use them on how to get out from under that. Once people can get past that point, then they start learning how to use the tools enough that their trajectory then shifts. So that doesn't mean people aren't going to necessarily feel better in the first 12 weeks. We've had people feel better in the first week, but sometimes it's because they have such a belief system that's changed. They finally found something they really resonate with and they feel good with. You see that belief shift. But from 12 weeks to 12 months is typically where you see people having to learn how to now break apart or break away from the familiar patterns that kept them stuck. So that's why, you know, I was saying before, people can feel good for a while, but then they end up back where they started because they didn't reinforce the new pattern or they didn't understand the reason why they needed to reinforce that pattern over time. Most people, if you want to do the math on this, most people, if you look at how long you've been in trouble, so if you start looking at when um, symptoms really started. So most people say, well, once I got diagnosed, it was, it was bad. I'm like, yeah, but stuff led up to the diagnosis. There was usually some warning signs, but like you don't usually just get diagnosed and had no warning signs. Mm-hmm. And if you are caught unaware, it's usually because you were not connected with yourself enough to even know what some of the warning signs are. Most of our clients, if they look at it and they look at where their symptoms began, Most of them can say, hey, there were probably 10 to 20 years I was kind of seeing some of this, but the diagnosis came later. The diagnosis for autoimmune often comes later than people are are feeling it because our system just isn't really good at diagnosing autoimmune still. Most people, it's like a three to 10 year process to getting a diagnosis. But if you look at the average person somewhere between 10 and 20 years, it's a good month of healing for every year you were suffering. Hmm. So the average person you're looking at about a year-ish to really kind of be in this real healing process. The challenge for a lot of people is they think they're in a healing process, but they're not, they're still in crisis. So if somebody, let's say, um, they bang their head against the wall until they get a headache, if they take a painkiller and the headache goes away, that's not healing. That's just taking away the pain. If they then wait for the painkiller to wear off, but they hadn't stopped the head banging, they're gonna be in a worse place after the painkiller wears off. Because they weren't actually in a healing process, they were still in crisis because they were still banging their head. So we want to go after the banging their head part, not just the let's get the symptom to go away. Let's see what caused the symptom in the first place. Yeah, I, and I can appreciate. So, uh, yeah. I can appreciate the timeline aspect of it because so often I think with natural healing methods, especially ones that are on the softer side, like what we're talking about mm-hmm. today, you know, not just like take this pill and it'll you know help this way. Um, there is a tendency to have no kind of end point there there's no real right. bounds around it and there's no null hypothesis to where you could say well it's been two years uh, where am i you know is this working and the answer is well yes it is working you just have to do it for longer and i you know i just mm-hmm. i can't stand that kind of thing no i don't either and that's why you know again we're pretty clear with people and that's it. but if people think this is a miracle pill where we're going to do this and then it's going to just shift tomorrow. That's also an expectation that we have to have with people too, because, you know, again, most people have been trained in conventional medicine. You take a pill, it goes away. I'm like, right. But every single pill has some side effect. It has some unintended consequence. But if you work with the body, then the body learns how to do its thing. The side effect isn't part of that process. But some people don't want to wait for that process, but then they also don't realize they're making themselves worse over time when they're doing something that's working against their natural um, process. Yeah, yeah. the pill works with uh, infections. That's about it. Mm, yeah. So, you know, in, in some cases, um, but, you know, there's other natural things that also do the same thing, but it's understanding your body. And yes, there's absolutely a time when you use uh, conventional medicine. Absolutely. But it's more emergency medicine. Like if I chop my arm off, I'm going to the hospital, like <laughs> not throwing some herbs at it. But it's also knowing how can I support my system even when I am doing something like that. So I don't have uh, too many questions left uh, other than, you know, how to get in contact with you and your details. But is there anything we didn't cover that uh, you want to cover before we end? Um, I don't know if I completely finished the um, answering your question when you asked us like kind of how you work with us. We, we a lot of times will have um, uh, free sessions where we do things like, uh, like we have one coming up in August where we have a five-day 
uh, challenge where people can actually work with us for five days within a group um, process and we'll train for five days and they get to do that. There's a free option um, and they get to watch all the replays up to a week. It's pretty cool and get kind of a feel for who we are and what we do. And when I say we, my husband is involved with us and we have other coaches on our team too. So they get to kind of meet us and see and, and test it out and see, is this a thing? Um, then there's uh, the option for them to then kind of move into um, a three-month process working with us and kind of really kind of uncovering that route, figuring out what that is. And that's a set program that they can get into. And then there's master's levels programs, which are a year. And depending on if they want to go deeper into the soul work or they want to go more into the health autoimmune component, with our autoimmune piece, we do labs. Like we get into the science, we get into the nutrition, and we build a whole entire program for them. And then they also get to work with other clients and see how they're processing and they get to interact with them, which we found to be one of the most amazing healing tools is when our clients are all together and they're seeing other people's storylines and they're seeing how other people are healing and what other challenges people are having because they don't feel so alone. So we have different levels in people can jump right into the mastery level programs if they are the right type of client to do that. But we found it's kind of it helps them to kind of build the process. Um, and then there's, it also helps uh, for people depending on where they are um, in their healing journey as well. So it depends on if they want to go super deep on the soul work or they do want to do some of the soul work, some of the science, some of the nutrition. Uh, we've got this just amazing team here, but we have another challenge coming up. We do one day events. Sometimes we do these five day challenges where they get like really to go through the process. And I think that's where Margaret, where she met us, she went through that five day uh, rewire your soul challenge. And then she, from there has moved into um, uh, the three month uh, process where she's really getting the foundation, the root issues under control and learning. And she's been doing some amazing work because she's showing up for herself. Yeah, that's awesome. So where can people find this online? That is a great question. Um, the challenge information is nourish, N-O-U-R-I-S-H, 123challenge.com. And our main website is just nourish123.com. So if somebody's like, hey, I want to cut to the chase. I just want to meet with you. I just want to talk to you. They can just make an appointment with us. We'll hang out with them for 15 or so minutes and just kind of see, is this a good fit? Um, is there some other recommendation we can make? Um, so they can go right to that if they want to, or they can jump into one of the challenges or one of the events that we're doing. But, you know, we've got a ton of videos on the website, a lot of people talking about their process. Um, so it, it, there's a lot of information yeah. that they can see. Are you uh, working on anything new coming up, a book or anything like that? <laughs> yeah, I always have a book in the back of my head. I wrote them when I was in the marketing and sales world. Uh, I had several of them, but I just, I keep going, ah, but I just keep creating new programs for people to go through. I think it's easier for them to experience what we do than just kind of read what we do because so much of what we do is experiential. So that's why I think I really like the the challenges and the online processes because they can literally experience a frequency session. They can literally experience some of the NLP techniques that we use. They can literally learn the process of the brain and how it works and go through some of these and see how they respond to it. Cause if it's not a good fit, there, there's no reason for them to try and force it. Um, so if you don't pro like resonate with the process, then it, you know, it's not going to be that helpful. So we want to, you know, give people kind of a test on it, a taste of it to see, Hey, do I feel good about this? And then, you know, meet us, so to speak. Yeah. Well, one thing I like to ask people before uh, before we cut off here, one thing I like to ask most of the guests, if there's time, is is there any health advice that you see out there that maybe you could put in a sentence or whatnot that you just think that's terrible advice? Maybe advice that's very well known and passed around quite a bit, and you just think, man, that's just mm. awful. Yeah, it's the idea that there is one diet that fits all. Any book, any technique, any person who is telling you this is the one magic diet that will fix everything, they don't grasp the concept of how the body works. It's the right diet for you, where you are in your health journey. And it's going to shift on you depending on how old you are, what your issues are, what your likes and dislikes are. Like if somebody told me right now I could solve all the world's problems by drinking celery juice all day, I would be like, no, because <laughs> I hate celery that much. And if you're hating on the food or you're detesting everything that you're going through, you're just not resonating with that diet, that process, it, you're not going to absorb the nutrition correctly either. So anybody that has like a one size fits all and they just don't see that it's really for certain specific individuals, I, I would run screaming from that process. It needs to be customized for the person. I agree completely. All right, Kirsten, thank you so much for coming on. I think this has been pretty solid. Thank you. I agree. I enjoyed this. Thank you, Lucas. 
This interview is definitely a bit different, and it dived into different topics than what I normally get into on this show. But that's a good thing, because what Kirsten does has probably just as much impact on health as diet or supplementation. Now, the main idea behind what she is offering is that there is a truth within you, an authentic soul, or you know whatever you want to call it, and understanding, accessing, expressing that soul is how you heal. Now, this is not a new idea. This idea, as far as I know, uh, it originated with Martin Luther in the early 1500s. So Luther put forward that the individual consciousness is the final authority on what has meaning. And being true to yourself is the final authority on how you should judge your life. This is a a Lutheran idea. I've been uh, listening to this podcast called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, and it goes through the history of how ideas like this one came to be, uh, how they evolved over time. I recommend that 50-part series highly if you do want to dive into those cool kind of, you know, historical philosophical philosophical ideas uh, like that. Now, just because it's an old idea, it doesn't mean it's a bad idea. In fact, being an old idea shows that there is power and truth in it because it lasted so long. Uh, That's called the Lindy effect, meaning the longer something's been around, the more likely it is tapping into some deeper truth or rhythm in the world or in life. Now, the question is why we as humans don't know why we are doing the things we do. (laughs) Uh, To use one of Kirsten's examples, you know, why do we get so angry when the dishwasher is loaded wrong when we know rationally that that's really not that big of a deal? And like we talked about, it's because we aren't mad about the dishwasher. We're mad because we aren't being listened to or we're mad that things are not in our control, uh, mad for some other reason. But why don't we know in the moment that that's the reason? Why do we need to do exercises and journaling to figure that stuff out? Well, in part, uh, the reason is because of the need for speed. So we were made to survive, not necessarily understand, or at least, you know, for our bodies, survival comes first. If a lion is running towards us and we have half a second to react, it isn't helpful to know that you know, okay, I'm afraid because if the lion eats me, that's going to be painful and my family's going to mourn me and I won't be able to do all these meaningful, meaningful things in my life. And I'm angry because this lion shouldn't be here. You know, I checked this valley just 15 minutes ago and there was no lion there. So what the heck? There's no time for that. You just get the surge of adrenaline and anger. And hopefully that gives you a chance to survive in that moment. So there are all these thoughts and emotions going off in our head. And often we have no idea why they are going off because our bodies don't need us to understand them in order to use them for survival. Uh, The only way we start to understand them is actually by slowing down. It's taking that need for speed away. And we can start to ask, you know, why did I react like that? Why did I fall for that same trap again? Now, many of the religious and spiritual traditions they all point to slowing down and stillness as a pathway towards greater understanding and meaning. Uh, Be still and know that I am God. When I was younger, I traveled a lot more, and I always noticed that being on vacation away from home, it had this potential to unlock uh, new understanding and wisdom within me. I would always bring my journal, and after a few days being in a new place, you know, the speed of life would slow down a little bit. Uh, the stress of performance, that would fade away. And I would start to see like, ah, you know, that's this is why I'm doing such and such. That's that's why, you know, when that happened, that hurt so bad. That That's, you know, connecting to this thing in my past. And these realizations, the best way I can describe it is they integrate you internally. It's like you're scattered within, you know, maybe you're a bit confused And as you make connections on why you are doing things, you become whole. That's literally how it feels. It feels like you are becoming more yourself, more whole. Uh, You know, I didn't know who I was. I didn't understand. And now I do. (laughs) And that process can bring more peace and less stress and more connection. The process of integration, it, it taps directly into what makes us human. And it makes us more enjoyable, to other people too. You know, have you ever hung out with someone who has a dramatic life, uh, they keep making the same mistakes over and over again, and they have no idea why? After a while, it's kind of annoying. You know, you, you want to bop them on the head and say, wake up, you know, change, do something different. It's 
much more enjoyable to hear from people that they're growing, they're maturing. It's, it's just more interesting. And what does that mean that they are maturing? Well, that's the self-integrating process, the peace, the love, the understanding. And to bring that back around full circle, how do you self-integrate? Be still and know that I am God. And ask questions. Questions help too. And journaling, all that stuff. So this process that Kirsten offers, it is a time-tested one. Her links will be in the show notes if you are interested in getting in on these courses. Unlike with supplements or grounding, which you know tend to just do what they're going to do, whether you think about it or not, a lot of these courses and, and this process, you're going to get out of it exactly what you put in. Thank you so much for listening. Please share this episode. It does help so much. Be well.